When an orchestra is looking for new players, they hold auditions. And in an audition, instrumentalists come and play a piece of music, and their playing is evaluated by the conductor and probably other people. I don't know who else, but somebody evaluates the sound that they make and the music that they produce. Somewhere along the way, orchestras began doing what are called blind auditions. And in a blind audition, the instrumentalists play their piece with something between them and the people listening to it. Some kind of a wall, some kind of a barrier, some kind of a screen is erected so that the people listening to the music can't see the people playing the music. And the reason for that, of course, is so that the people listening to the music are only judging the music. They're not judging the people playing the music. They don't know whether the people playing the music are of a different race. They don't know what sex that person is. They don't know anything about him or her other than the music that they're playing. Way back in 1980, and orchestras have been doing this blind audition stuff for a while, and way back in 1980... The Munich Philharmonic Orchestra was looking for a new principal trombone player. So the principal of any position in the orchestra is the first chair. They're the best player in that section. And so this orchestra, the uh, Munich Philharmonic, was looking for a principal trombonist, and they held a blind audition. And the winner of that blind audition was a woman, a woman named Abby Conant. She was the best player of all the people who auditioned. But even though she was the best player of everyone who auditioned, she was not given the position of principal trombonist for that orchestra. Instead, the conductor whose name I'm going to butcher, a man by the name of Sergio Celebadace. I've been working on that all week, all right? Sergio Celebadace seated her not in the principal seat, did not give her the position nor the pay of the principal trombonist. Instead, she was put in second chair and she was paid not according to what her colleagues, who were the principal players in each position, were making. Well, as you can imagine, lawsuits ensued. And Over the course of 12 years, Abby Conant finally was given the position that she deserved, the one that belonged to her. She was finally given the principal uh, position of um, the trombone section, and she was given the pay that was commensurate with it. But the reason she wasn't given to it, given the reason it wasn't given to her before, is because the conductor and perhaps others showed favoritism. They showed favoritism against her. The conductor believed that only a man would be able to play the trombone well enough to deserve the position of principal trombonist in his orchestra. And so the fact that she won the audition, fair and square, by any objective measure, was the best player, didn't matter to him because he had a preconceived notion. And his preconceived notion was biased against a woman in that position. The problem that this illustrates is the problem of favoritism. And it's only one example. It's only one example of a problem that pervades society. Favoritism 
shows up in human societies in many ways, some of which we don't even consider or think about unless it happens to us. And you've heard the quote that says, to err or to err is human, but to forgive is too divine. Well, I'm going to take that quote and paraphrase it a bit and say something about favoritism this way. I'm going to say favoritism is human, not divine. As we come this morning to James chapter 2, James is going to give us a very long paragraph about the topic of favoritism. And what he is going to say in various ways throughout this paragraph is that favoritism is a human problem. It is not reflective of God. Favoritism is human, not divine. And people, that means, I think, and I think it's clear, that people have a natural tendency toward favoritism. Favoritism comes natural to us. That's why I say favoritism is human. It's part of the human condition. It's easy for us to do, and it comes naturally to us. And there are different types of favoritism. Nepotism is a type of favoritism that favors one's children, usually, or one's family, or one's close friends, over others who might be more deserving. Racism, of course, is another type of favoritism. One that treats some races better than others. Some that treats some races poorly because of a favoritism, a bias that is built into the hearts of people. And there are other kinds of favoritism besides this. Because favoritism is human. That's not saying that every human has every type of favoritism. Of course, it's untrue. But every human has some type of tendency to show some type of favoritism in the world around us. Favoritism is a human tendency. But as we look in the Word of God this morning, and as we look over the course of the next several Sundays, at the beginning, the first paragraph of James chapter 2, we're going to see that favoritism, while being human, is not godly. Although favoritism comes naturally to us, the Bible's going to tell us that God hates favoritism, and his people should too. If I were to put a banner over this entire section of James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. That's one way I could describe the whole paragraph, is that God hates favoritism, and therefore his people should too. And as I've already indicated to you, there's a large paragraph here in James chapter 2. It goes from chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 13. And I'm going to break it up over the course of a few messages But I want you to see the unity in all of this, that all of these verses, verses 1 through 13, address the human topic of favoritism in the church of God. And so I want to show you kind of an overview of each of the sections, and then we'll dive into the first section this morning. This section tells us that God hates favoritism, and his people should too. And in verses 1 through 4, which we'll look at this morning, we're going to see that favoritism comes from evil motives. Why does God hate favoritism? Because favoritism rises out of our sin nature. It rises out of evil motivations, and God doesn't have that. God doesn't have a sin nature. God's motives are always pure and holy. They are never evil. And so one reason why God hates favoritism in all of its forms is that favoritism comes from evil motives. A second thing we're going to learn about favoritism in a coming message is in verses 5 through 7. And that tells us that favoritism is ungodly. And what I mean by ungodly is it is opposite of the way that God works. James is going to tell us in verses 5 through 7 that the way God operates in the world is the exact opposite of favoritism. 
And so we'll look at that in a future message. Finally, we'll look at verses 8 through 13, and we'll see there that favoritism will fall under the judgment of God. One reason why God's people must not show favoritism is that God will judge those who discriminate in the church based on favoritism. Those are the three subparagraphs in James chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. This morning, we're going to look at the first one, verses 1 through 4, which tell us that favoritism comes from evil motives. Why should you and I work to expunge favoritism from our lives? The answer is because favoritism comes from evil motives. I've said already that favoritism is human, not divine. And that means because favoritism is not divine, that means that God's people show favoritism when our focus gets misplaced. The reason why favoritism crops up in the church, the reason why the people of God, instead of reflecting the godlike character of no favoritism, the reason why we show favoritism toward others is that our focus gets misplaced. And I want to show that to you from our passage, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 this morning. Verse 4 begins with a paragraph change, with a change of topic. And it would be very easy for us to read verse 1 and just say, well, this is just a preamble to what James wants to say. This is just a way of changing the subject, but it doesn't have a whole lot of information in it. But that would be a mistake. What James says in verse 1 is not just a preamble to change the subject. What James says in verse 1 sets the table for what he is going to say in verses 2 through 4 and actually throughout the rest of the paragraph. And so when we talk about God's people not showing favoritism or the fact that God's people show favoritism when our focus gets misplaced, we need to begin by understanding that our focus as a church belongs on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what verse 1 is trying to indicate to us. It's trying to tell us that when we gather as a church and when we worship the Lord, and of course in our daily lives as Christians, the focus of our lives, the purpose of our lives, the reason why we do what we do should be because of Jesus Christ and who he is. And so let's dig into verse 1 and see how this verse shows us that our focus as Christians belongs on the Lord Jesus Christ. James chapter one, uh, 2, verse 1 begins with these words, My brothers and sisters. And I want you to understand that in the original language, the only word there is brothers. The NIV translation has added the word and sisters so that English speakers, both men and women, don't un- improperly apply this passage only to men. In James's language and in James's world, it would be understood that unless there was some kind of a specific word used to designate men only, that talk calling the church brothers would include women. But the NIV translators want us to understand that, of course, the implication is that this applies both to men and to women in the church. Now, James uses this phrase, my brothers, or he uses this word brothers, multiple times in the book of James. The book of James has five chapters in it. And yet this address, this very warm, this very personal, this very loving address, my brothers, shows up 13 times in the book of James. 
Now, often it shows up in a change of subject, as here in, in chapter 2, verse 1. But not always. And in fact, later on in this same paragraph, James is going to use this phrase again. And so sometimes James uses it when he changes subjects, but it's not simply there. It's not designed, it's not given to us just to tell us that there's been a change in subject. Instead, what James does when he calls us my brothers or when we read my brothers and sisters from the meaning of the passage, we are to understand that James is calling us to reflect on who we are now in Jesus Christ. He's specifying that the words he has to say are for people who are part of the family of God. There are four people who have become Christians. There are four people who have been changed by the grace of God and saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and are now therefore granted status as children of God, which makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. And so James wants us to reflect on our position in Christ, but he also wants to convey his love for us, his his warmth toward the believers who have come to know Jesus Christ by faith. He's going to say some hard things here, but he wants us to understand that it comes from a place of love because we are the family of God. James goes on in verse 2 and says, my brothers and sisters, and then he says, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. Believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that word believers tells us how we became brothers and sisters in Christ. We became brothers and sisters in Christ, not because God privileged some of us over others. In the sense that he looked down and saw something worthy about us and said, I want you in my family. No, we became believers by faith in Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us the faith we have in Jesus Christ is not a reflection of our own ingenuity. It's not a reflection of our own smarts. It's not a reflection of our own wisdom. Instead, according to Ephesians... It is the gift of God. The Bible says we are saved by grace through faith, and that doesn't come from yourself. It is the gift of God. And so by reminding us that we are the people of God, that we're brothers and sisters, because we have faith in Christ, because we are believers in Jesus Christ, James is trying to emphasize to us again that God has graciously given us a gift that we don't deserve. That we are who we are in Christ. Because God was pleased to save us. And not because we deserve anything on our own. But then he goes on and says this. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. This part, I think, is really, really important for understanding Not only what is said today, but the rest of the paragraph. When James calls the Lord Jesus Christ glorious, he's making a statement that sets us up for what is going to come later, especially in today's message, later on in the passage, in the verses we're going to study this morning. And I can't go on, I can't can't say what I'm going to say next without throwing in this aside, okay? So what I'm about to say for a minute or so I probably, it probably really isn't necessary for this message, but I can't help it, okay? Um, James says, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to remember that James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Remember that we know that from uh, church history, from the context of the New Testament, and from chapter 1. 
Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. His conception was a miracle, an act of God that caused him to come into this world fully human and fully divine. But after Mary gave birth to Jesus, she married Joseph. And they had a normal sexual relationship as a couple, and that relationship produced other children. James is one of them. And so as James was growing up, the person that he calls here the glo- our glorious Lord Jesus Christ was his big brother. I have two brothers, and they're great guys. I love them to death, and I think the world of them. I would never ever call either one of them glorious. And I don't think they would call me that either. But James understands that although he is related to the human aspect of Christ, through Mary, their common mother, that Jesus is no ordinary half-brother. James has come to recognize the divine nature of Christ rests in the human person that we call Jesus. And over the course of the life of Jesus, somehow by the grace of God, God lifted the veil of unbelief from his eyes because when Jesus was alive, his brothers and sisters didn't recognize him. They didn't know, they didn't realize that he was the son of God. Some point after that, God lifted the veil of ignorance from their eyes and caused them to see the glory of Jesus Christ. They caused him, God caused James and his brothers to see that Christ was God in human flesh. And this word that's translated glorious here in our NIV is a word that means godlike. It's a word that describes the shining qualities that only God gives off. And so James has come to understand, and his readers have come to understand, and we who know Christ have come to understand that although Jesus is human, he's a very unique type of human being. He is God in human flesh. And because he is God in human flesh, although he was veiled by that flesh, during most of his lifetime, after he died, was raised from the dead, that veil was removed and Jesus is now glorified. And even though he remains human, as a glorified man, the God-man, he exhibits, he shines forth all of the qualities of the greatness of God. And James says, before he talks about the problem of of, um, favoritism in the church, he says, remember who you are. Remember that you belong to Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ is glorious. From him shines forth all of the greatnesses of God because he is God. He is God and he is glorified. Now, here's the point that I'm driving at and the reason why I spent all this time describing this first phrase of verse 1. When the Bible tells us that we are believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, the scripture is telling us that that is where our focus as Christians belongs. I'll draw this point out a little bit more clearly in a moment. But James is telling us that Christ is glorified, that he is glorious, that he has has these godlike qualities about him. In order to set up the contrast between the type of favoritism that could show up and probably was showing up in the churches that James was writing to. And he wants to remind the churches that when we come together to worship God, 
Jesus should be the focus of our worship. Only he has the godlike glories. Only he is glorified and only he is worthy of our adoration and our praise and our attention. And when our focus is on Jesus, when we come together to worship, then we will be less tempted by the very human tendency of favoritism. When we understand and reflect on the glories of Jesus Christ, the glories of human beings will fade and will pale in comparison to the greatness of our God, Jesus Christ. And so that's why our, we, James begins as he does. He wants us to focus on Jesus Christ. And as a church, as we gather to worship, that's where our focus should be. But here's the truth. Although our focus belongs on the Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes we focus on people. Sometimes when we gather as a church, we're not thinking about Jesus and contemplating his glories. Instead, we're looking at one another. And in verses, uh, the end of verse 1 through verse 3, James is going to explain to us that the problem of favoritism arises right here. That we fall into favoritism, or at least we're pulled into temptation to show favoritism. When we spend too much time thinking about people and not enough contemplating the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. This passage begins, or the, the part that I want to talk about, begins at the end of verse 1. James has set, it, set up the discussion by focusing on our relationship with Christ and the glories of Jesus Christ. And after doing that, after saying, my brothers and sisters, believers in our, Lord, in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, he says this, believers... Believers must not show favoritism. Now that translation is a little bit softer than what James actually said. What James says is a command. And so you could translate this, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, colon, don't show favoritism. And in fact, there's a, there's a little bit even more strength to this than even what I just said. Because the phrase that's translated must not show favoritism could be translated this way. Stop showing favoritism. Stop showing favoritism. The way James constructed this command could be translated that way. It doesn't necessarily have to be translated that way. But if that's what he wanted to say, this is the way he would put it. And I think that's the point. I think James is telling us That favoritism is a very natural, it's a very human tendency. But because we're believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, we need to cut it out. We need to stop it. We need to remove it from our lives as Christians. Now, the word favoritism, the word that's translated favoritism here, is very interesting as well. It's a word that the writers of the New Testament appear to have coined. It's a Greek word that that the New Testament writers invented, that they made up. Now, it's reflective of a Hebrew word, and that's why they made it up. But it doesn't appear anywhere outside the New Testament. And yet, in the New Testament, Luke uses it in the book of Acts. Paul uses it in a couple of different places. James uses it here, and so does Peter. And so even though it's something that Christians created, it's something that was well-known in the Christian world. It's a word that um, that was... well-known in the Christian world. 
And the word itself means to receive the face of. Favoritism means to receive the face of. And what's the point? The point is, a person shows favoritism based on appearances. When a person shows favoritism, they look at someone. They focus on that person. And they choose either to treat that person well or treat that person poorly based on the face that person presents. Based on the appearance that that person has. And it's uh, one more thing about this before I move on. This word favoritism is actually plural. The whole phrase is, stop showing favoritism, is actually plural in the original language. And the point is, James is going to give us a very specific example of of, of favoritism. But by using the plural, he wants us to know that all kinds of favoritism should be excluded from the church. He's going to talk about favoritism of the rich over the poor, but the point is much larger than that. Any type of favoritism is inappropriate among the people of God. And so as James begins to teach us about favoritism, he begins with that phrase, believers must not show favoritism. We must stop showing favoritism because favoritism is not appropriate in the people, among the people of God, in the church of God. God's people show favoritism when our focus gets misplaced. And that's because we concentrate, we focus on how people look. And James is going to describe that beginning in verse 2. Notice what it says. James says, suppose a man comes into your meeting. And this phrase, this word meeting is very interesting. The usual word for the gathering of the church in the New Testament is the word ekklesia. And it just means, it's just a word that describes a gathering of a group. An assembly. That's not the word James uses here. James uses the word synagogue, in other words, synagogue. He says, if someone comes into your synagogue, remember that James was a Jewish man writing to Jewish believers. And although he is addressing the church, he wants, us to, he wants them to understand. He's not addressing the church in its distributed sense, living out in the world. He's addressing the church in its gathered sense. When the church gathers for worship, that's what James is talking about. And notice what he says. He says, suppose a man comes into your synagogue. Suppose a man comes into your Christian meeting. And he's wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. James sketches out the difference, the appearance in the difference between two men who enter the church meeting. And both of these men must be new to the church because neither one of them knows where to go, as we'll see in the next verse. They are given directions about where to go. And if they had been part of the church for a long time, they would not need this type of direction. So James is describing someone who's new to the church, either because they are new converts to Christ or because God is drawing them by the Spirit to hear the gospel. Either way, these people are new to the church. And their appearance is very different from one another. James describes the first man and says, he's wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. He's wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. Now, James doesn't say he's a rich man. Instead, he describes what a rich man looks like. In James's culture, in the Roman world in which James lived, there were six classes of people and that those six classes were like pyramid-shaped in the sense that most people were at the bottom, and as you go higher on the rungs, there were fewer and fewer people involved. 
The only people who could afford a gold ring like this would be people in the top three sections of the Roman class system as it existed. And so the fact that this man is wearing a piece of jewelry was an automatic signal that he is wealthy. That's why James doesn't tell us he's wealthy. He just tells us he's got something that only wealthy people have. Now what's very interesting is the next word that says, he comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. This phrase, fine clothes, actually means shining. The things this man, the the garments this man are wearing call attention to themselves. They are so unusual, so costly, so well-made, and of such high quality in their original, the original fabric and the manufacture of them that they almost shine like an angel. And so here's a man who is dressed to call attention to himself. And the attention that he's calling to himself is deliberate. He showed up this way at church so that he could signal to everyone that he was a man of wealth, a man of status, someone to be looked up to and to be treated well. Notice the second person that is described in this passage, though. It says, this, the, after the, the man wearing the gold ring and fine clothes comes in, the Bible says, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. Notice, James doesn't say the wealthy man is wealthy. He just describes him. He does say the poor man is poor. And this word that's translated poor in the NIV describes the poorest of the poor. There are different words in the Greek language to describe poor people, and this is the lowest of them. This is the poorest of them. James wants to set up a very deliberate contrast between people of high status and people of low income and low worth. And he goes on to describe it this way. He says, he's a poor man in filthy old clothes. Now, it's one thing to have old clothes, right? But someone who is poor could still show a level of respect or try to earn a level of credibility by washing his clothes and washing himself so that even though his clothes may be old and they may show signs of wear, at least he has done the best to put his best face forward. But this man, his clothes are dirty. They smell bad. And this also indicates something about the level of his poverty. The reason he didn't wash his clothes is because he doesn't have another pair of clothes to put on, most likely. He is so poor that everything he owns is on his body, is on his person. And so James describes these two men. He says they both show up as first-time visitors in the church. And James then describes how they are treated in verse 3. He says there, If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, Stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. In order to understand what's going on here, we need to remember that although James calls their assembly a synagogue, they weren't meeting in a synagogue building. Instead, these churches met in people's homes. And in your home, you have different types of furniture. None of us has the kind of furniture that would have existed in a first century home, but, but we can sort of project And think about what it would be like to have a house church, and you can see the point. If you had a church meeting in your home, 
there are some seats that are better than others. If you have like a nice sectional that has like, maybe, maybe it's even leather and maybe it's got a thing that can crank out so your feet can go up and you can actually push back and lie back. And maybe it's even got one of those things that pulls out and you can put a, a cup there. That's a nice seat. That's a nice place to sit. Somebody might gravitate toward that seat when they come in to the house church that meets in your home. But you also probably wouldn't have enough seats like that for everyone, and so you'd have to pull out some of the kitchen chairs, some of the dining room chairs, and those are better than nothing, but I don't know about you, I find dining room chairs to not always be the most comfortable of seating. But maybe that's not even enough for everyone. Maybe you've got some folding chairs in the basement that you bring up and People have to sit on those. And maybe there's some people who even have to sit on the floor because everything that someone could sit on has been brought out and yet there are more people there. That's the situation that James is describing here. Some seats are more comfortable than others in this house church. Now James in verse 3 says, if you show special attention, notice he's talking about focus. I said in verse 1 that our focus ought to be on the glories of Jesus Christ. But James says, these two guys walk in, and your focus goes to the guy in the bright clothes, the guy who's got the expensive threads. And you not only notice that he is someone special, but James says you treat him with the special consideration that would be common in their culture. He says in the middle of the verse, you say to the man wearing fine clothes, here's a good seat for you. Now, Good seats are relative, right? I believe the good seats are here in the front, but I know some of you disagree, and that's why you come early and fight over those seats in the back. But in our church, we don't tell people where they can sit. Every chair is essentially the same, and you can kind of decide if you would rather be in the front or the back based on your own personal preference, and no one's going to tell you to move once you've got a seat. In James's world, these men were directed to seats, and the direction that they were given were based on how they appeared. It was based on the way that they looked. This man looked good. Everyone knew he was in the upper crust of society. And so since he was used to being treated well, he was given the best seat in the house, the most comfortable seat, and I'm sure the one that has the best view of the preacher. The other man had a very different experience. James says of him, you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. One option for this guy was not even to get a seat. It was to go stand in the back. And maybe that's said first because that would be the preference. But the other option for the man is very interesting the way James words it. He says, sit on the floor by my feet. And that translation isn't quite accurate. A more accurate way to translate it would be sit under my footstool, sit under it. Okay, and so here's the point. And the reason why it's not translated that is that doesn't make a lot of sense in English. We think of a footstool as something that sits maybe a foot off the ground. How's a man going to sit underneath that? Well, he's not literally, but metaphorically is the point that's being drawn out here. James worded it that way to make a point, and here's the point. The person who says to the poor man, I'm going to put my feet on this footstool, and you're welcome to sit next to it. That person is making a statement indirectly about the value of the person told to sit on the floor. Remember that the floor in many of these homes was dirt. And remember that people walked around in sandals on dirty streets, the same streets that were used by animals 
who left their excrement in the street, all right? And so people's feet were dirty and smelly. The person who says to the poor man, sit on the floor under my footstool is saying this, I'm going to prop my feet up because they're actually worth more than you are. They may smell bad, but I want to give them a better seat in the house than you deserve because you smell bad too. And so if you want to sit there on the dirt floor, cross-legged, next to my feet, go right ahead. But my feet deserve a better seat than you do. This is a very extreme description of favoritism. The man who is obviously wealthy based on his appearance is given a privileged place in the church. A man who is obviously poor based on his appearance is mistreated by the church. He's not even given the dignity that everyone else in the church, the common people in the church would have. Instead, his very low status is emphasized by the way the church treats him. And so James sets all of this up, and then he leads us to the inevitable conclusion in verse 4. The inevitable conclusion in verse 4. And that inevitable conclusion is this. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This, as you noticed, ends in a question. But there's a way of phrasing questions in the original Greek that leads you to the answer the author wants. And this question is raised and it's phrased in that way. It's phrased in a way that expects a positive response. It's, a way, it's phrased in a way that expects a yes. And so when James says, if you give the man who's obviously wealthy a good seat and you discriminate against the poor man and make him sit somewhere or stand somewhere in the back... Haven't you discriminated and shown yourself to be judges with evil thoughts? And the answer expected is yes, you have. While the person or the church has not, may, not, may not have said a discriminating thing, they may not have made a favoritistic statement. Their views on the value of these two men are revealed by their actions toward them and where they are told to be. And what it reminds us is that favoritism is all about how you look. When people show favoritism, it's because they are judging by appearances. Our focus as Christians when we gather should be on the Lord Jesus Christ. But too often, we stop thinking about Jesus Christ and we think about each other. We think about the, the conclusions that we've reached about one another. And when someone comes in, we jump to conclusions about them. We look at them. We focus on what they look like. And we make conclusions, we make assumptions about them. Now, James says about these assumptions in verse 4, that when we treat people with discrimination, when we treat people with favoritism, We have discriminated amongst ourselves. That goes back to his address about us being brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead of being collectively the family of God, all of whom have equal worth as sons of God, James says you're making discriminating statements. You're saying that some sons of God are more valuable than others. And the ones that are more valuable than others deserve better treatment. 
than the ones who are on the lower rung. But then he says this, and you have become judges with evil thoughts. Favoritism rises out of a sinful attitude toward other people. And the sinful attitude that it rises out of, the evil thoughts that James talks about here in James chapter 2, verse 4, are evil thoughts about our associations with other people. If someone comes into the church and they're a celebrity, and they obviously not only are known, we recognize them because of their celebrity, but they look like a celebrity. They look like they dressed well, and their, their dress, the way they dress and the way they look is designed to call attention to themselves. If somebody like that shows up, that could be a very good thing for our church in the eyes of the world. You mean that guy goes to your church? Wow. Your church must be something special. And so the evil thoughts that James is talking about here is this. It's it's the thought that maybe our church will rise in the estimation of the community around us because we've got a guy like this as part of our membership if he becomes a member. And it goes even further. It's thinking, hey, maybe I could get this guy to hire me and I could do business with this person. And if I cultivate a friendship with this man, maybe it'll be very good for me economically speaking. The problem with favoritism is that it focuses not on Christ, it focuses on the person, but it also focuses on the self. The reason why we regard the rich or whatever person we're discriminating toward well is because we think they have higher status, but also because we want to be pulled into the tractor beam of that status ourselves. We want some of that gold to, you know, that shiny clothes to rub off on us. We want people to look at us as people of quality, people of status. We want our estimation to rise. And the reason why the poor people are not wanted is because the evil thoughts there are, well, what if our whole church was full of people like this? What if he went and got all his homeless buddies and they all came and invaded and even sat on my barca lounger? Where would that leave us? What's the point of all this? The point is, that we fall into favoritism in the way that we treat other people when our focus goes off of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, and focuses instead on the glory of others. Or the way that we treat others lower than us shows that we glorify ourselves more than they do. We show favoritism when our focus gets misplaced. And so this passage of Scripture wants us to understand that when we focus on others instead of on Christ, we will act out of favoritism. When we focus on others instead of on Christ, we will show favoritism. Because it's the humanity in us leaking out instead of the godliness in us being expressed. And so what's the message for us as a church? What is the big idea that we should take away from this? Well, favoritism is human, not divine. And God's people show favoritism when our focus gets misplaced. And so what do we do? We should focus on God, not on favoritism as an intentional act of faith. And it takes an intentional act of faith 
for people not to show favoritism to each other. Let me give you some thoughts about how to put this into practice in our fellowship, in our church. As we think about this as our big idea, as we think about focusing on God, not on others, not on favoritism, as an intentional act of faith, let me give you some thoughts about how we should think when we gather as a church. The first thing I would say is this. What do you come to church looking for? Because you see, I think a lot of times we come to church looking for attention or looking to pay attention to other people and hoping that they'll give some attention to us. But if, as James suggests, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ should be the object of our focus and our attention, then it stands to reason, and I think this is exactly the point, that you and I should come to church looking for God, not looking for attention or to give attention to other people. When you come into this service on a regular basis, do you come hungering for the word of God? Do you come asking God, show me your glory Let me see your greatness pulled from the pages of Scripture and draw my heart to worship the brightness of your glory, Lord Jesus Christ. Or do you come in here not really prepared to worship the Lord, not really thinking about the Lord? If so, then your focus is going to be on others or on yourself. And so the first thing I'm advocating is think about what you're doing when you come to worship. Prepare your mind. Prepare your heart as you drive here on Sunday, on Saturday night as you prepare, as you come into this, this room. Think about God and think about Christ and ask God to show you his glory as we look in the pages of Scripture together. Ask him to elevate your mind and your heart above the cares and the favoritism of this world and cause your focus to be placed on the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. So when I say focus on God, not favoritism as an intentional act of faith, I'm saying make it an intentional act of faith to focus on God when we come together. The second thing I would say is this, because we do look at other people. It's going to happen, right? But if we can look at other people with a Godward focus, that means we can learn to look at other people the way that God sees them. You see, when we come together to worship, when we come together as a church, we come to worship, okay? But part of our worship always is serving other people. And so instead of looking at people as people to have their glory reflect on us, we should be looking at the people around us saying, how can I serve the people in this church. Help me to see this congregation the way God sees them. And what God sees in this congregation are some people who aren't saved, perhaps, and who might need a word of encouragement about the gospel message. What God sees when he looks at our congregation is someone who's hurting or someone whose faith in Christ is weak because of some circumstance or some thought that they've had. Instead of looking around the congregation and making your associations based on how someone appears, God would want us, as we focus on Christ, to then say, how can I serve the church around me? Instead of looking at the poor man in the shabby clothes who smells bad as someone who's going to lower the credit score of your church, 
looking at him through Godward eyes would say, I wonder if this man knows Christ. He's never been here before. I wonder if anyone has ever shared the message of Jesus with him. And here's a man who clearly smells bad. Maybe he's got nothing else to wear. Perhaps I should buy him a pair of clothes or give him something from my wardrobe. Instead of judging people and favoritism by how they look on their face, we should be looking to serve them because serving them is part of our worship of God. It's part of what making the Christ the focus of our worship is all about. And when we have visitors to our church, I'm sure that they have a different experience. I'm sure that some people, based on how they look, people gravitate toward them. People make contact with them. People ask their names they want to know about them. And other people in our church maybe come and they're not even seen. They're not even noticed. If you and I are going to avoid favoritism, if we're going to have a church that reflects the glory of God instead of favoritism, We need to focus on God, and as we focus on God, we need to see other people as people we can serve. That's an intentional act of faith.